0: But I also think that plasticity, brain plasticity, will continue to surprise us. We'll find things that we hadn't even imagined that the brain is doing. I think I understand how it would feel for like you to be working on this really important and exciting topic and be making so much progress, and then some neuroscientist come along and says, "You should be learning from what I do." <laughs> like, but I feel like there's there's so many like basic things that that we just haven't ever answered, like. We've had 100 years of neuroscience, and we don't know whether spike times matter or not. You know?
1: (laughs) I know. It's sad. It's sad. (laughs) Hello, Brain Inspired crew. (laughs) This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. You may know my guest today as the co-founder of Neuromatch, the excellent online computational neuroscience academy. Um, Or you may know him as the creator of the Brian Spiking Neural Network Simulator, which is freely available. I know him as a spiking neural network practitioner extraordinaire. Dan Goodman runs the Neural Reckoning Group at Imperial College London, where they use spiking neural networks to figure out how biological and artificial brains reckon or compute. As you likely know, almost all of the current AI that we use to do all the impressive things that we do uh, is built on artificial neural networks. Notice the word neural there. That word is meant to communicate that these artificial networks do stuff the way our brains do stuff. And indeed, if you take a few steps back, and you maybe spin around ten times, take a few shots of whiskey, and then squint really hard, there is a passing resemblance between artificial networks and our brains. One thing you'll probably still notice in your drunken stupor is that uh, amongst the thousand ways that artificial networks differ from brains, is that they don't use action potentials, or spikes. From the perspective of um, neuroscientists, that can seem mighty curious. Because for decades now, neuroscience has focused on spikes as the things that make our cognition tick. We count them, uh, we compare them uh, between different conditions during cognitive tasks. Uh, And generally, we put a lot of stock in their usefulness in brains so what does it mean that modern neural networks disregard spiking altogether maybe spiking really isn't that important to process and transmit information as well as our brains do or maybe spiking is one among many ways for intelligent systems to function well anyway uh, on this episode dan shares some of what he's learned and how he thinks about spiking and spiking neural networks and a host of other topics and you can learn more about his work in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 183. And of course, I link to a few of the papers that we chat about today. As always, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. You can learn how to support the show and get the full episodes and a few other bells and whistles at the website at braininspired.co. Okay, I reckon you'll enjoy this episode, and I hope you do. Here's Dan. In a world where we've already reached artificial general intelligence and we've done it without spiking neural networks, but with rate-based neural networks. One researcher, actually a lot of other researchers as well, is sticking to their guns and studying spiking neural networks. That researcher, researcher today is Dan Daniel. Dan, Dan. Goodman. Yes. Yep. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you very
0: much for inviting me. It's, uh, it's very exciting to be on this. We, we listen to it a lot, so. Uh... <laughs> we haven't talked about it in that lab, so it's, not, it's oh, nice
1: to Well Well, Apologies and thank you. <laughs> so uh, I haven't had someone on talking about spikes in a long time, and I thought um, it, it's overdue. And you have been studying spiking neural networks since you got into neuroscience, I believe. Um, you have a mathematical background, hyperbolic geometry, I believe, is what you got your PhD in. And, and maybe we can come back to that, but when you started studying neuroscience, were you immediately interested in spiking neural networks? What's, what's the background there? Why spiking neural networks?
0: Yeah. So I got into, um, neuroscience after, after deciding that I wanted to to do something other than maths. Um, and I just started reading around and basically I think that the thing that just popped out at me is that why does the brain use this weird mechanism, right? Like spikes are a kind of a bizarre way of, of, of communicating information in a way, you have these are binary pulses, but that they come at very precise or potentially very precise times. Um, yeah, what, what's going on there and how do we think about modeling that? Uh, it, it really struck me as a, as a question that was sort of interesting, I guess, from a mathematical perspective. I mean, I, w- I was coming from maths, so it seemed mathematically yeah. interesting, but it also seemed like a, a, a good good, just general problem.
1: Yeah. Why did, why did you, what made you want to venture away from math?
0: Uh, yeah, I guess I wanted to do something that was, I wouldn't say more applied, but more like rooted in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed doing, doing maths as, a, like as an undergraduate um, and, and as a PhD student, but it, it kind of... Well, my, my little anecdote about this is that I wrote one paper during my, my PhD, and I presented at a conference and about six people were interested. And I think those are the six people that have ever cared about that paper in right. all time, right? So, 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 what, so it, it felt like it was, um, it was a slightly monastic experience of, uh, of experiencing the world. I wanted to do something a bit more in the world. And I'd actually always been interested in, um, I guess, intelligence, broadly speaking. Um both my parents are psychologists. Um so uh, okay. my, my dad had me reading David Marr at like fourteen years old and stuff wow. like that. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um so so I guess it was kind of natural for me to somehow sort of find myself uh doing this. And and then it was really confirmed when a, a biologist friend of mine said, Oh, you should do neuroscience, they need mathematicians and I was like
1: Okay. Wow.
0: <laughs> um I don't know if that was true or not, but uh <laughs> it was it was enough well, to get me hooked.
1: <laughs> so I mean it's interesting t- at least to me anyway that if if you ask a physicist right a physicist will say well I, you know what's the problem i can solve it um there's a s- s- sort of arrogance i might that's maybe being unkind but um physicists think they know the the right approach to everything and I- i'm not sure about mathematicians what do mathematicians do, do they carry with them that same sort of arrogance
0: yeah, I guess so. Although, I mean, they don't venture outside of maths so often as physicists perhaps. So uh, perhaps it's not quite so flagrant.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can't I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with with um, fellow neuroscientists ruining the fact that we have not had more of a mathematical background and how it slows us down um, so frequently. So um, that's something that you don't face.
0: No, although... There's very different types of maths, um, like,
1: yeah.
0: in many ways, a lot, because a lot of the maths that's done in neuroscience is done by physicists, it's a sort of mindset that is actually quite different to what I did as a pure mathematician. Um, so I, is I, it closer to applied? Yeah, exactly. It's a bit more closer to it, I guess, closer to applied. So, like, for me as a, as a, as a pure mathematician, I, I rarely had to take, deal with, like, solving a really hard differential equation. <laughs> Whereas that's oh. like bread and butter for, uh, for physicists. Um, and they get really good at it. Um, yeah. I was more about, I guess pure maths is somehow more about like, how much of this information can we throw away and still say something generally interesting about it? Uh, it's a different sort of sort of mindset. Um, so yeah, I'm still quite like flummoxed by some of the physicists' stuff. Like, um, uh, oh, what's that? That's that equation Cordy you used to solve diffusion- Problems. Oh, that's a nightmare.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exotic. Um, yeah. Some sort of it. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're reading David Marr at 14, and he's the one that uh, so many people point to in terms of how to approach studying "quote unquote" intelligence. Right, taking that top-down approach, where you figure out the behavioral computation first, and then search for algorithms, and then finally look at the implementation level in the brain. But like we just said, that you know you've been spiking, studying spiking neural networks forever now. What is it about spiking in in general that that turns you on scientifically? i mean, You already said um, that it's just a curious way you think to reckon. And by the way, your group neural reckoning. I I actually looked up <laughs> reckoning today. Do, do people tell you this? No. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> because the way that I think of reckoning is like the third definition, which is. A comeuppance, right? Like when you have to finally pay <laughs> yeah. your dues. But it really just means calculate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's more the sense that I had in mind for it. <laughs> okay. It yeah, all I just, makes I sense just to didn't me. want it to be like the Goodman Lab. I, I try and avoid like, stuff like that. That's...
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a cool name, especially with the definition that I had in mind, also, because it's it's like saying, hey, you're going to have to reckon with these spikes eventually, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I, I like that element to it as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so So then. You know, when I say what's important, uh, or when I generally ask what's important about spiking, I get sort of one or, one or two general answers. One, computational efficiency, right? It's always up there. Um, and I'm trying to be more and more convinced that, that that's a uh, super important for intelligence reason. But the other uh, reason is just, well, that's how brains do it, so there must be something special about it. So do you fall into either of those camps or do you have anything to add or why you think that spiking itself uh, might be important?
0: I I agree with both of those. Um, And I also kind of agree that there's also something slightly unsatisfactory about that answer, but maybe we can come back to that. But yeah, no, I I agree with both of those. And um, I think it's not just this is how the brain does it, so there must be something special about it, but this is how the brain does it. So if we want to understand the brain, we need to understand it. Um, okay. obviously that's less important if you're thinking about AI or, um, if you're thinking about it in some more higher level sort of cognitive frame of mind. But if you really want to understand ultimately what the brain is doing, I mean, it is doing it with spikes. So we do kind of need to understand them at some point,
1: but there are levels of understanding, right? And, and one could argue as many of the modern deep learning practitioners, modern neuroscientists who use deep learning to study the brain, um, would, likely argue that well maybe spikes are really not that important because look at the, all the functions that we can provide with these rate-based models.
0: Yeah no I think that's right I mean one, one starting point that you always have to bear in mind in this is that both spiking neural networks and rate-based artificial neural networks are both universal function approximators so you're, you're never going to find something that SNNs can do that ANNs can't do or vice versa mm. right? you can always do it The question is and and this actually gets to the other point that you mentioned is there one that for particular sorts of problems is much more resource efficient than the other right like you know suppose that there's we find some task that you can do with snns that you need a hundred thousand times more neurons to do with an ann now in a way that's 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 just a a resource constraint problem right of the sort that you find um uninspiring um
1: well it's also a thought experiment i mean are there examples that you can think of that I'm sorry to interrupt but uh
0: um yeah so so I have to be honest and say I don't think that there are yet examples um of things where SNNs are definitely better I mean there's there's things I think where it's clear that that's what the brain is using like in the sound localization circuit um we use the timing of individual spikes and that's important right. um and, and it uses properties of spiking neurons it uses um instance, detection for example so in terms of understanding the brain, I think there's definitely cases where spike, spiking is, is important. And, and if you do sort of like information theoretic analyses, you see that spikes timings are carrying information that isn't carried by the rate. Right. Um, and even going one further than that, I'd say, the question shouldn't really be like, can you prove that the spikes are important? It's more the other way around. It's like, can you prove that the spikes are not important? Right? Like They're definitely there. So the, the burden of proof should, should really be the other way around. But yeah, I, I don't think that we have a really clear and obvious example of like, okay, in this computation, the spikes." we know that the spikes are doing something that we couldn't easily do with ANNs. But I think a part of the reason for that is that we don't know how to think about the type of mathematical systems that are involved in spiking so anns it's linear algebra it's calculus we've been thinking about that for hundreds of years we have amazing mathematical tools for thinking about that spikes are weird they're sort of discrete and discrete systems tend to be more difficult than continuous systems in any in any case And they're sort of continuous as well. And so that's almost like the worst of both worlds in terms of our understanding. We can't really apply our discrete systems thinking, and we can't really apply our continuous systems Mm. thinking. So what do we do? Um, And and I think part of what happens is that we end up looking at the problems that our tools can do, right? So we have ANNs that are very, like, uh, for example, I think it's not surprising that like static image recognition was one of the earliest success stories of ANNs because time doesn't matter, right? And, and those tools are really good for dealing with things where time doesn't matter. As we start to get more and more interested in things where time does matter, I think maybe this is a hypothesis, right? Like right. I, I don't have a proof for you here. We, we, we don't yet have the example where spikes do better, but maybe we'll start to see cases where if not spikes something a bit more like spikes some sort of something with some element of of both time and space built into it um, mm. starts to become interesting and, and i think maybe i don't know if this is true or not but maybe we're already starting to see that for example like thinking about like self-driving cars um that's somehow quite different from a lot of the early success in that you don't you're not presented with an image and like here is an, an- here is an answerable question what is this a picture of mm-hmm. right like one feed-forward run, bam, you, you know what the, the picture is. It's like, here's a continuous stream of information. At any moment, some tiny feature in the corner might become present that becomes critically important, right? Like a, like the child's football flying out between two cars or something like that. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, the, the, one of the reasons we're not making such fast progress on things like self-driving cars, as, as was hoped for, is that that tool is not so good for that problem. Obviously, we don't have a spike in neural network that can do that either. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but but, yeah, again, that, that I think is because we don't yet have the, the, the same quality of mathematical tools, the same like vocabulary or frameworks for thinking
1: about that. But so then going back to the efficiency question, I mean, timing and efficiency are sort of wrapped up with each other, I suppose. Is this where you think that efficiency becomes important? Is because of the timing element? I think there's
0: there's two different... Elements. Like, so what, one of the reasons why the, the neuron, the spiking neurons, are efficient is because they're not continuously communicating. Right? They only have these bursts of information, um, and obviously that that's something that happens in time. But I think that there's also just an element of processing continuously varying signals. I guess. So like mm. we can we can use ANNs to um, recognize sounds, for example, but very often those frameworks are not taking, as it were, like, a, like we are, like a, a stream of samples over time, or something like that, um, they're doing a, like a free analysis and they're treating it as an image, essentially. So they're, they're turning this uh, time varying problem into a static image problem mm. because we've got a tool for doing static image problems. And amazingly, it does really well, <laughs> but it's not, I think, what our brains are doing and it's not necessarily the right tool for that task. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, um, I just, I I want to think of efficiency as a um, important for intelligence computational principle, but it sure feels like with computing speed and power these days, we can just brute force our way there. And I don't, I'm not sure that efficiency is all that important, but I want to be convinced of it.
0: Yeah, I, I actually kind of think that we're maybe getting close to the point where efficiency is starting to be a limiting factor even but people have been saying
1: that i'm sorry to interrupt no
0: no that i mean it's true it's true people have been saying that for a long time but I, i saw an analysis i can't remember who did this but basically saying that if you look at the amount of energy that needs to be put in to get an improvement on various like test scores in like ml benchmarks like you're getting a doubling of energy for like a halving of the improvement over time right so so at some point that does have to cap out um we can't keep doubling energy to get you know a quarter of a percent better on the benchmark and then an eighth of a percent better and then like whatever right right um, and also i think that there's an increasing interest in being able to do stuff that doesn't require sending your data to a central server which then runs it on some massive you know computational mm-hmm. thing and then sends the answer back so for example like that's that's not ideal for self-driving cars because you have latency issues right if you need to make a quick decision you don't want to have to send it back Send the data to a server and get a response yeah. back. Obviously, that's also critical for sort of animals in the wild, but that's a that's a separate issue. Right. That's perhaps also one of the one of the things that gets people interested in neuromorphic computing. Right. Like the the promise of that. So I, I think that there might there might be a limit. I think we're probably we haven't reached it yet. But like last, I think it was last week there was an announcement of um, I think it was. Facebook wants to buy 350,000 of these mega H100 GPUs and various analyses of how much carbon those would be dumping into the environment. And and I think OpenAI had a similar sort of announcement that they want to to sort of like solve the energy problem in order to make further progress. So So I think, you know, it is becoming an issue. We may not have quite tapped out the approach yet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. But I mean... Maybe more, more than that is that there, there might be like a huge leap if you could, if, if, it, if instead of just like a small improvement of energy efficiency, you could get like a, you know, like a massive leap in energy efficiency, maybe you can then bypass that like poor scaling where energy is doubling and performance is, is, is halving and, and yeah, get some sort of, I don't know, more linear scaling or who knows, right? Mm. Um, th- there could be all sorts of interesting things going on there.
1: But so so your bet, so what I wanted to ask you is whether you've ever been tempted to abandon the study of spiking neural networks in favor of these rate-based models that have been performing so well. Um, and, and I know offline you mentioned to me that you maybe weren't initially as excited about using machine learning approaches to study brains and cognition, but that, that you've come around to them. So maybe you could elaborate on that as well.
0: Yeah, but I might have been thinking. I mean, I, so I went to uh, Neurips in, I it was two thousand nine, something like that. Uh, and I didn't know anything about machine learning at that, at that time. Um, and it was already like it was gearing up. It wasn't quite as you know, it wasn't as big as it was now, but it was gearing right. up. And I remember yeah. coming back from that conference, and uh, my supervisor said, "Okay, what do you, th- what do you think about this machine learning stuff?" And I was like, it "Just seems to be something for selling adverts, as far as I can tell." Um, <laughs> which is true <laughs> and, and i still kind of hold on to that but i do feel like i really mm. missed a big opportunity there to, to to realize that something important was happening and definitely something important is happening right like the effect of machine learning on neuroscience i think is a good thing i'm not one of the sort of like anti-machine learning luddites. i'm also skeptical about certain elements of it um sorry what was the question i, I feel like you, i'm getting
1: uh, what was the well the, the question originally, and then I immediately switched it because I'm a terrible host. Was whether you've ever been tempted to jump ship right. from spiking neural networks? But.
0: Yeah, so actually, I mean, I was kind of I think I was kind of on that on the way to that until um, I read about this new development um, in in training spiking neural networks surrogate gradient descent. So this is this idea from Friedemann Zenker and Emre Nefzi, which is basically an idea from taking in the algorithms from machine learning, but with a clever trick allowing you to train spiking neural networks which normally which were really hard to, i mean there was a technical reason why training spiking neural networks using those algorithms is hard which is that they're not differentiable and all of those methods right. require differentiability um anyway okay. so so i read about that and i tried it out and it just works amazingly it's like magic oh.
1: well there have um, been multiple approaches to training spiking neural networks in the past but so why this one in particular it just was a a step beyond
0: yeah just i mean it just works right like so in the old days we used to train <laughs> things with with stdp and we could kind of get spike timing dependent plasticity we could kind yeah, of thanks. get some interesting results from that um but it never got us like right from the beginning i thought like if we of if we, if my time in neuroscience i thought if we want to study the brain we have to study it in the environment in which it's doing its its thing right like it it deals with high dimensional complicated noisy signals um you know it's got a really hard task that's why intelligence is interesting because it's solving a really hard task. But we study these incredibly simple mm-hmm. sort of laboratory stimuli where everything is perfectly controlled. And it was hard enough even to get STTP to, to work in those like highly simplified scenarios. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, machine learning comes along, surrogate gradient descent comes along, and, and it just like, oh, yeah, you wanna recognize an image? Okay, just give us some images, bam, it just learns to do it. Recognize some sounds, bam, it just learns to do it. Um, and so suddenly, we can do the thing that I always wanted to do, which is have these spiking neural networks that are solving like interesting real-world problems. Of course, now the problem has shifted in my mind to how do we understand what those networks that we've trained are doing uh, and say something okay. interesting about them. Uh, and I, I'm still thinking about that. But at least we can now do the thing that, that I always wanted to do. So, so that's, that's, for me, what, what was a big
1: change. So that's one of the areas that it doesn't bother you, that it is not biologically accurate because surrogate gradient descent and please correct me uh, my description basically does a forward pass with spikes and then emulates the back propagation algorithm which is not biologically plausible but it does that by replacing the um the unit spike uh with like a sigmoid right or like something that's differentiable Um, and, and so it doesn't bother you at all that that's essentially what uh, all other rate-based networks do in terms of training the network but it's not uh not how brains do it
0: there is one thing that bothers me which is that i don't understand why that trick works
1: oh okay. um
0: and, and as far as i know i i, I keep asking friedeman about this every every time i talk to him like no, no none of us really know i mean like we have some sort of vague intuitions but we haven't a really solid answer as to why hmm. why this trick should work which means we also don't know in what cases it doesn't work Right? If, we, if we knew why, if we had a solid answer to why it would work, we could say, okay, well, it'll train to do these sorts of things, but it won't be able to train to do these sorts of things. That would, I would feel more satisfied if I had that answer. Right. Um, but, but, it, but I don't feel too upset that it's not learning in the same way that biology is learning. Because what I want to do with it is not to come up with a model of plasticity, but find out what functions spiking neural networks are capable of. Mm-hmm. And for that, I don't really care. It's just an optimizer for me.
1: And so then going back to the machine learning approach, one of the reasons that uh, you're more on board with it now is because you can use more complicated tasks, right? Ask your networks to, to uh, solve more, more complicated, more ecologically valid. Would that be a way to say it yep, as well? Definitely,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I think all sorts of interesting things come out of that, like f- things that are up to more for very simplified problems are not necessarily the same things as are optimal when things get messy. Um, so yeah,
1: part of what you do is um, come up with a more complicated task for your networks to perform because when you train them on these fairly simple tasks, you realize, well, they don't actually need these features, right? The networks don't need these particular features to solve the task and we can do it fairly straightforward. Um, so, so part of what you do is just make more complicated tasks and figure out, well, when does it kind of break those simpler models? And when do we need the, the more complicated models? Um, so I, I guess my question is like, originally, what I was going to say is like, all of our problems are messy, and, uh, you know, require these um, more, more complicated computational tricks. But maybe, I'm, maybe that's not true. Maybe most of what we do is actually kind of simple, and we and it's not necessary.
0: I mean I think like right from the beginning we have a very complicated sensory world to decipher, right? There's a lot of noise. Um, you know, like as I'm as I'm here recording, I can I can hear in the background the 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 lift shaft behind me, the people talking out in the corridor, and I hope not too much of that is coming through on this microphone. And I'm filtering all of that out. That's already quite hard. Um and Oh, just going back to you earlier, I think that's that's something that still machine learning is not terribly good at. Actually, is extracting the, the background noise and and, and understanding speech the co- in, in The in cocktail problem? Diagrams. Yeah, the cocktail party problem exactly. Cool. Um, but yeah, sorry, that was a distraction. Um, so I think we're we're always dealing with quite complicated problems um, in terms of the inputs that that humans are interested in. Just thinking again about like the visual field, like that's an awful lot of data, most of which we're throwing away, but we don't know which bits to throw away. That's already quite a hard problem, right? But, right. And yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we're, we're always doing, I mean, I guess our brains wouldn't be so big if we weren't always solving <laughs> quite hard problems.
1: <laughs> so going back to the surrogate gradient descent that got you all excited about sticking with spiking neural networks, first of all, how close were you to jumping ship? <laughs>
0: It's, it's, it's not so much I was thinking of jumping ship. It's just that I was finding myself thinking more and more about solving problems, not using spiking neural networks, I guess. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I was, I mean, you know, I don't think I was fully planning to jump ship. It was just that my interests were sort of starting to drift off in various different directions. Yeah. And then, yeah, this, this surrogate gradient descent really like has, has refocused me, I guess, on, on thinking that's really interesting and, and worth following up on
1: does the rest of the, uh, do your cohorts also love the surrogate gradient descent? I mean, because there are so many different other solutions that have been proposed.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of whole family of things that are, uh, that are similar to some surrogate gradient descent. Um, but there's definitely been a sort of leap at around about that time. Um, hmm. so I think, so surrogate gradient descent isn't the only one. There's other approaches, um, for example, uh, so, so Tim Masqueria came up with a really interesting approach to treating the neural, uh, uh, networks as if they had just one spike and then using this time of that spike as a continuous variable. So that was right. another trick for doing it. Um, and then there's other groups that have sort of taken a slightly sort of hybrid approach to that. Um, and yeah, so there's various similar things that are somehow in the air. Um, my impression is that surrogate gradient descent, at least from what I've seen, works the best. Now that's probably going to be controversial, probably people will tell me that. No, actually sure. in, in our tests, our one works the best. Uh that's just that's just my feeling. Um I think it's it's good for everyone to do their own thing. Um, but uh yeah, no, I mean I think in in the world of, of people who are interested in spiking neural networks, it's it's really uh it's taken that field um by storm quite quite a lot.
1: Yeah. But you don't think that having an algorithm like surrogate gradient descent that is really good at training networks you don't think that that gives us any purchase onto how brains are learning just h- at how they're performing the tasks once they've learned
0: yeah that's a really interesting question it doesn't have to logically it could be entirely separate i think it is probably quite an interesting starting point if you're also interested in plasticity okay so i mean You can't directly apply surrogate gradient descent for a well-known reason, which is that it uses global information that wouldn't be available to an individual neuron, right? Like It's the same for just using any sort of gradient descent as a model of plasticity. It uses information that the neuron can't know. Um, And then there's a whole sort of slew of work that says, okay, well, can we approximate what gradient descent is doing with a local rule? Uh, and that, and, and actually, already that can generate a lot of the sort of plasticity rules that people have studied in the past in neuroscience. This is a generating idea that that can sort of, you know, backwardly explain a bunch of stuff that we did that we did previously. Um, and, and I think that's also a really interesting approach going forward as well. I think by by studying how we could do gradient descent biologically, it's likely mm. we'll come up with good ideas. Um, but I also think that. Plasticity, brain plasticity will surprise us, will continue to surprise us. We'll find things that we hadn't even imagined that the brain is doing. Like there was that paper, I can't remember it in the last, sometime in the last few years, that showed that neurons were exchanging little, little packets of RNA. They were sending messages yeah. to each other in little, you know, like encapsulated packets of, of RNA. We don't know what that's doing. We know that that's happening. Maybe that's something to do with learning. Who knows, right? Like, and if that's something to do with learning, then anything is possible, right? Because we're sending arbitrarily complex message from neuron to neuron. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if thing, more things like that sort of show up in the future. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't think we should be too constrained by a specific idea of like, learning must happen at the synapse and anything that, that the synapse can't see must be irrelevant. Um, yeah. But
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've, I I repeat myself ad nauseum about this, but the more I learn about brains, the more confounding it seems because there there are just so many different possibilities, right? So we you know we've lived since let's say Donald Hebb in the um, neurons that fire together wire together paradigm of learning, and that might just be one of I don't know twenty different way, <laughs> different ways, which is um, I'm not sure if. In some sense, that's exciting, and in another sense, it's daunting. I don't know how you feel about that.
0: Uh, yeah, both. But, but I think more exciting, right? Like, I mean, one of the reasons I came into neuroscience, I think, is because I, I like the idea of this: like, everything is still to play for. Or, you know, un- unlike maths, where we've got thousands of years oh. of history and all the all the big questions are kind of already solved to some extent. Um, like Everything is, is kind of unknown in neuroscience. We don't, we don't really know how the brain is, is working very much at all. Uh, we know lots of little bits. <laughs> Um and, and I think neuroscience is actually in a really exciting time for that at the moment like there, there have been some really cool discoveries and and things you've talked about on the show before, like um like representational drift, for example mm-hmm. or uh there's the, the, a surprising amount of synaptic turnover. Um, that exists in the right. brain right like you know we we have this idea that memories are encoded in, in in sort of static weights that once learned basically never change that's sort of classical way but it looks like that doesn't really happen anymore so that completely messes with our way of thinking about what neural networks might be doing mm. um, and, and so I think that's great I mean I love that um, I don't have the answers to that those questions that's but but it's really fun to have things that completely challenge our, be- like our really basic conceptions of what's going on in the brain. Oh, and, and like, you know, finding out that like, maybe astrocytes are much more important than we ever
1: thought Oh, before. I was going to ask you yeah. about astrocytes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also
0: don't really know how to think about that. That's, mm-hmm. that's another, like, so, so I think, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really good to be really open-minded about what might be important. Uh, because if we go in with too fixed an idea, like, you know, learning must happen here, and it must have this sort of shape, we're, we're not going to find answers. We have to be more open-minded if we're going to
1: get those answers. So this is a, a, a two-pronged question then, um, but I, maybe now the right time to ask it or them. I agree that we know, it pains me to say this, there is let's say that let's say it this way this is more optimistic there's still lots to learn about the brain i was going to say that we know very little but i'll say there's lots to learn you're more um, diplomatic than me <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying <laughs> so it, it, now i have a current project where it's like hugely exploratory right now uh, as well because we don't know we don't know some fundamental assumptions and it just hasn't been explored very much and there's not much theory to go on um in, in that case How much do you lean on theory or how much do you think that we need theory versus how much should we be just exploring because of – and we'll we'll talk about some of your work that explores like some hyperparameters and stuff. But because it it just seems so high dimensional that the way that the brain can solve things, is it just a matter of exploring um, and, and for lack of a better term stamp collecting for a long time while our theories get shaped or do we need to go in with a theory first approach?
0: oh that's a that's a really hard question um i mean i i think we kind of have to explore both ways of doing things and that's that's always going to be my answer i I kind of feel like in in all cases in neuroscience we we just need to be trying out a lot of different stuff because we can't know in advance what is going to work and what isn't going to work and everyone just has to make their own bet about that um i think it's really the, the back and forth between those two approaches is what generates a lot of interesting ideas right like if we're talking about experiment versus theory for example like that discovery of synaptic turnover for example that raises a lot of questions about what our theories were before and and you didn't need to have a you didn't need to go into finding that there was this all this synaptic turnover with a theory right like you can just observe that and and say it and then everyone's like oh what do we do about that right <laughs> um but also i think and this is something maybe we, we we could we could do more of we could say like here's a thing that would make sense for the brain to be doing like as a theoretical perspective can we can we do you know better at probing that with experiments i, I think we we do that direction i would say less well um uh, mm. than than the other direction or, but, but when you said theory like do you mean theory versus experiment or or sort of like Theory you can as in like I, mathematical theory versus like simulations or something like that. But
1: well, I, that I meant more. I meant, sorry, I, I meant more along the lines of a, of a David Marr kind of um, computation approach, right? So the brain is doing X, right? Or well, let's say like plasticity, right? So we, we could come in and saying, well, the, the brain has to change synapses so that they're the perfect weights. Um, and then when we start looking and we see that, oh, these weights are constantly undergoing turnover they're never the same it's a much more dynamic process so what does that do to our theory do, do we stick to the theory and say well it has to be there has to be some level of static connective strength right uh, because that's what our theory says needs to happen but but that doesn't exist so then where do we go from there right so uh, an alternative approach is to to measure these things to stamp collect and say well how much is it turning over and then you know build your theory from there
0: yeah uh, yeah and again like Sorry if this is boring, but I think we just have to do. We have to do both, right? Like, and and you see, you see this in response to this thing about synaptic turnover, right? Like, the first responses from the from the theory community to that were, okay, but maybe there's something that's still invariant, mm. right? So, so and right. then we'll we'll switch to thinking about about that thing that's invariant, and maybe that's true, but maybe there's a more interesting answer. But that's but whatever that more interesting answer would be is probably something that's harder to come by. Um, and, and I think, well, going back to possibly something I said earlier, it's, it's. We we kind of have this st- static way of analysing things that so we have this mathematical frameworks that are good for that, and we're less good at dynamical thinking in some sense. I mean, we have dynamical systems, but it's not exactly what I mean uh, a dynamical system because that's also in a weird way a sort of a static thing. So it's um, all
1: states, spaces, states, yeah, State, exactly, yeah, which is static, yeah, yeah. What would be that? What would be beyond dynamical systems? Uh, I mean, I have, I'm partial to a process philosophy-based approach, but I struggle mightily uh, to think about how to apply it practically in this, in you know, ex, in experimental settings.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it's 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 super hard, um, and and yeah, we don't have the existing mathematical tools to do it. I think
1: is is that the the barrier you think?
0: For me, that's one of the big barriers. I, I just don't know how to theorize about this in a satisfactory way with, with maths. And, and, you know, I, I, because I'm originally a mathematician, I, it, it always comes back to maths for me. Like, basically, I'll have understood something once I can turn it into a sort of mathematical way of thinking about it, which, which isn't true for everyone. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess some some of what I'm doing in, in my work is is trying to come up with Simple enough that I can make progress on them. Cases where that slightly more dynamical way of thinking about things makes sense, and then I'm sort of hoping, I guess, that somehow by looking at lots of these sort of examples, I'll, something will jump out at me, which which I, which <laughs> I can't say that it has yet. Um, okay. But yeah, so so in a way, it's like I'm almost doing I'm almost doing like fishing experiments in the in, in the sort of pool of possible computational like simulation experiments or something like that but yeah
1: yeah is is that um maybe this is a good time to talk about heterogeneity in uh time constants right so this is is this one of those cases where you <sighs> i don't know how you decided to test that in particular uh among all the different kinds of hyperparameters that you could have tested but can you explain kind of what you did and and what you learned from it and and maybe why you did it
0: yeah so so this is a paper that came out a couple of years ago where Basically, we, sh- we showed that, well, in a lot of work on, on spiking neural networks, not all work, but, but quite a lot, people would say, okay, here's the neuron model. It's got these parameters, and we're going to you know, see what happens when we sort of train the weights to do various tasks or something like that. Um, and actually, that project just came out with me saying, well, look, this, this gradient descent thing is we can, we can just make those neuron parameters trainable as well. Right? It's, it's like a, in fact, it was, it was a one-line change to the code to make those parameters trainable versus not trainable, like it was it was as easy as that in a way. What happens when we do that? Um, and what we found was that if we made the, the time constants, which uh, the reason why we picked time constants actually is we, we looked at other stuff as well, is just that for a very simple leaky integrated fire neuron, there's not so many parameters that are actually in it, right? Time constant is one of the main ones. Um, the so, defined
1: time constant just to be thorough. Right, so t-
0: time constant is basically uh, how, for a leaky integrate and fire neuron at least, it's how quickly the neuron forgets its previous inputs. So if it's got a very short time constant, the only thing that matters to the neuron is the most recent few spikes, or the spikes that have arrived. Let's say it's the time window that it, that okay. it, that it remembers over, right? So if you've got a one millisecond time constant, only the spikes that have arrived in the last couple of milliseconds will matter anything that arrived p- p- before that will have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. If it has a time constant of 100 milliseconds, it's all of the things that happened in the 100 milliseconds before that that matter. Um, when I say it like that, you might think, okay, well, why shouldn't you always have it be longer? Um, well, it also the, the timing doesn't matter so much within that window, right? So if your time constant is one millisecond, because it's only things that happened in the last millisecond or a few milliseconds that matter, Timing is now very important because all of those things happen to have to happen simultaneously. So it's sort of doing mm. coincidence detection. If it's like 100 milliseconds, it's basically just how many spikes have come in recently. So it's, it's switched from being a more temporal to a more sort of integrating um, neuron. Right, so what we found was basically we tested it on a whole bunch of different tasks and the tasks varied in how much temporal structure they had in them. So at one end, they were just like, static images essentially. So there's no temporal structure to them. We can, we can do that with spiking neurons, but we're not really in a sense getting anything that we couldn't do with an artificial neural network. At the other end, we were, using, we were looking at sounds, which have a lot of temporal structure in them. And basically what we found is that the more temporal structure you had, the more you, it, you got an improvement from having, allowing this heterogeneity uh, in the time constants. And the gain could be quite dramatic um, hmm. for those most temporally complex tasks so that essentially by adding in that heterogeneity you got as much increase in performance as you would get from like multiplying by 10 the number of neurons or 100 or something like that in the yep. network so if you hadn't got that heterogeneity you'd need 10 or 100 times as many neurons so that was one part and then and then we also found that after training if you just like took a histogram of the time constants as found they had a very sort of characteristic shape that when you look in in real data, um, you also see the same characteristic shape. So that was also kind of interesting.
1: One of the points that I've read or heard you make is that um, this is essentially a free, um, energetically free way for brains to be more robust and to learn better, because it doesn't cost anything to build in that heterogeneity.
0: Yeah. In fact, it's, it's even further than that, which is that it may actually cost us to not be heterogeneous right like oh, to, okay. to, to, to have everything be exactly the same might be more expensive for the for the brain than to have everything be be variable uh, and you also see that um, in neuromorphic computing um, i don 't know if you want to talk about that now or, or later, but sure yeah. in in some forms of um, neuromorphic computing devices it's actually there's there's sort of like noise in the manufacturing process so that the as it were the, the equivalent neural properties it would be really hard to get them all exactly the same or, or expensive or whatever, to have every property be exactly the same. So having them all be a bit noisy and spread out is actually more the default thing. Um, and therefore, again, in neuromorphic computing, it, it may actually be energetically cheaper to have heterogeneity than, than not to. Um, or, or, or alternatively, it may be that you just have to live with that if you want um, to implement things in, in, in brains or in neuromorphic computing devices.
1: You don't have any idea, sorry, this is an aside, but whether that heterogeneity, heterogeneity is a species dependent thing, right? So like maybe, maybe lizards don't have much heterogeneity. They only have like really low time constants. I'm sorry if this is a, this is a naive question, but.
0: Um, so, well, so we, we, we saw it in, uh, in the, so I use data from the Annan Institute, which has this mm-hmm. unbelievably amazing database that they just make freely available to everyone um and it's it was in there across several different species um okay so like it was there in humans it was there in in uh in primates it was there in um was it cats i can't remember there was uh, there was a there were a number of mice maybe there were a number of species in that that database and, and it was there in all of them but also i mean i think i would and I know that you've also you've had you've had Eve Marder on and and talked about the the STG and the fact that in in those circuits those neuron parameters vary by orders of magnitude from crab to crab, right? Um yeah. So it seems to yeah. me that it's likely that that heterogeneity is probably everywhere. Although I mean, like, I'm not an expert on. Maybe in C. elegans things are cleaner, but I still. i going to
1: ask about C. elegans <laughs> next, but I'm sure it's actually known in C. elegans. But the reason why I, no, I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. Um, I think the reason why I was asking that is because it dawned on me that evolutionarily, perhaps it's not energetically favorable. It's not a free, it's not free. Although the way that to build in heterogeneity, um, although way, the way you said it earlier, that it actually costs more to not have the heterogeneity. <laughs> maybe that's the better way to look at it evolutionarily as well. Yeah,
0: I I feel like I'm not enough of a a sort of geneticist or a developmental biologist to, to to answer that question uh i think that would be a really well, interesting question to know the answer to like is it more expensive to have all the neurons being the same or is it more expensive to have them all be different i i just don't know um but it, it may certainly but i think it may be the case that it's more expensive to to have everything be the same in a way you, we'll do, to you need it. to have some like sort of quality control mechanism that forced them to be the same right right uh, which is impossible but that that, <laughs> okay. that Well, I I think if it mattered that they had some some precise value, then we'd probably, you know, evolution would have found a mechanism to make sure it had that precise value.
1: But Uh, but if it if it doesn't matter either way, uh, then you would expect that part of the state space to be explored in some species, I suppose.
0: That's that's true. Yeah. So there might be somewhere it's more heterogeneous than others.
1: So, okay, so this is like one hyperparameter. We were just talking about how complicated brains are, how messy they are, how there are so many different hyperparameters that you could play with. Um, and you just mentioned Eve Martyr and her classic work on on showing that um, there's lots of different ways to do the same thing. And there's one way to do multiple things. <laughs> Going back to the idea of like theoretical approaches, do, part of your tagline in on your website is that you're looking for unifying perspectives, unifying approaches. Um, but then it seems like the more we discover, the less unifying it actually is. Because as you fish, you catch a bunch of different kinds of fish. And, and this fish that we were just talking about are, are these time constants, right? But that's just one of many hyperparameters that's like constantly overturning and constantly changing in this dynamic, highly recurrent, et cetera, et cetera, brain. I mean, do we need like a theoretical approach for sort of each question, right? Do we need a theoretical approach for time constants? Is that going to be its own thing? Or what I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not saying a unifying theory of the brain, but then the alternative to that is to have 10,000 theories of the 10,000 processes happening in brains. So uh, where do you fall in thinking about that?
0: It's certainly a possibility that that there won't be a unifying idea. But I think it's always more interesting to look for them. Um, And so for example, like one of the things that we looked at and we didn't find an answer to this is we wanted to try and find a mathematical explanation for why this heterogeneity had these properties that it did. And I think we had some intuitions, for example, that there's some stuff from sort of like random network theory in machine learning that basically says that you kind of, it's like having, having some randomness in the structure can often be beneficial. And I think that they also don't fully understand exactly what's going on there but again it's been it's been demonstrated in in multiple cases and and like maybe what was going on is somehow the same right like if if everything is the same versus there being some sort of, some sort of like random random structure to to it, something about robustness may fall out of that like I'm being very vague here right because we didn't manage to pin this <laughs> down exactly but uh. but it feels to me like there could be an explanation of what was going on that could both explain you know why it is that. You know the, these random matrices have interesting structuring and also explains why it is that having heterogeneity in neuron properties is valuable. I, I could I could imagine a theoretical explanation that does cover all of those cases, even if I don't quite have it yet. Um, so, so I think that there can be those unifi- unifying principles, uh, but yeah, but they're hard to get at.
1: <laughs> do, do we? Would you not be satisfied with a non mathematical uh, explanation? Um. Because randomness, right? I mean, I guess you, randomness is mathematical, but I, yeah,
0: I'm not. Yeah, maybe it's because I'm a mathematician. But for me, like, <laughs> I guess my bias is like, what it is to understand it is to be able to reduce it to maybe maybe not like necessarily a simple equation, right? But but something that I, if 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 it's understandable and it's a quantifiable thing, I feel like that's what math is to me in some mm. sense. It's, it's putting that understanding on there. So, so for me, it kind of would be that. Uh, but maybe that's just because I have such a, a strong mathematician bias that I can't, I can't imagine any other sort of understanding that, that makes sense. Mm.
1: Um, Let's talk about sparsity. Uh, so sorry if this is kind of a, a leap, but sparsity is on my mind a lot these days. And you had mentioned to me that you, you have begun to think of it as an important principle of brain reckoning. I'm going to start using reckoning all the time now. By the way, thank you Perfect. for that. Yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> the reason why it's uh, on my mind is because I'm recording neurons in like mouse uh motor cortex and basal ganglia and these are like really low firing neurons so they have a sparsity to them and it's has been difficult to get a purchase on how they're encoding ongoing behaviors. Because there's just not as nearly as much structure there as there is in, like, let's say, non-human primate uh, motor cortex or different areas while they're performing tasks. Why do you think sparsity? Um, it, why have you come to think, I, I suppose, over time that that sparsity might might be an underlying important principle?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, sparsity is one description of of spikes, right? That's temporal sparsity. They they're yep. just these messages that occur infrequently in time. Um, and you also have sparsity in, in space. Uh, and you have a lot of that in the brain, right? Like you've got um, N neurons, you certainly don't have N squared synapses connecting all of those, that would be way too many. Um, so we have to have a much sparser set of connectivity. Um, so I guess what, the reason I think that there might be something unifying those two is that we've just seen a lot of cases where putting things through a bottleneck can have really valuable computational properties. So, like in machine learning, for example, you've got autoencoders, right? You take a high-dimensional thing, you squeeze it down through a few layers into something low-dimensional, and then you squeeze it back out again. And that autoencoder network often has a lot of interesting things going on in it. Um, you know, basically, it forces you to um, throw away information that isn't so relevant, so it has a sort of compression factor, um, and it often dis- discovers structure. In that much lower dimensional representation, so so I think that there's <clears throat> there's an interesting computational properties, and then there's also um, this famous information bottleneck principle, right? Which is which is a way of sort of analyzing. So the way I think about it, I don't know if this is the way everyone thinks about it. Is for me, it somehow defines what a computation is. Um, I think in neuroscience, we often have this idea of representations of of something else, right? So so like the retinal code is a representation of the, the visual image, for example. And then quite often you, you, you have further transformations that are somehow have this representation of quality. You can reconstruct the input from the output. But ultimately I think what the brain has to do is it has to start throwing away information. It has to say, this is the information that matters and I wanna throw everything else away. Um, and for me, that's what makes a computation interesting in some sense, oh. right? That you've thrown away irrelevant information. And that's kind of what the information bottleneck principle tries to encode. It's like, what is is the sort of the transformation that maximizes the information about the thing that I care about and minimizes the information about everything else? Uh, And I find that a really powerful sort of mathematical framework for thinking about the sorts of computations that I would expect. Particularly, I think the the sort of early perceptual systems, Mm -hmm. like early visual system, early auditory system would be doing, they'd be like, our main job at the start is to, is to keep the relevant stuff and throw everything else away because there's too much data.
1: Back yeah. to efficiency.
0: Back to efficiency, indeed, yeah. Um, so, so th- right, exactly. So, that, so that's why I guess I, I think that those two questions of like efficiency and what the interesting computation is aren't entirely disconnected.
1: Okay. Right?
0: Because it seems like you could, you could think about this bottlenecks as being about efficiency, but they also seem to be actually about being able to do the task well at all. Like throwing away irrelevant stuff. Ultimately, you've got to do that if you if you do the task. So, yeah, that somehow,
1: somehow. You don't mixed, have right? to. I don't, I don't think that you have to, right? Because let's say in an autoencoder, or there's a bottleneck, right? And then, but then you're in an autoencoder, you're, you're reconstructing. Often, you're reconstructing the original signal, um, and so that means that there is information gain after the bottleneck that has been learned, right? So the system has learned to. Just take the "quote-unquote" represent, low-dimensional representation and then fan it back out. Um, but that information is encoded in the connections of that network. Um, so, in that sense, you're not really losing information if you can just regain it.
0: So, in an information-theoretic perspective, you can only ever lose information. You can't. You right. can't gain information. So, so no, you're not. You're not gaining information when you when you reconstruct. Um, although maybe it kind of looks like it. It's it's just that you are, I guess highlighting information that was already there by 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 recon by reconstructing the original image for example
1: reconstruct okay so i know like in shannon all right, we don't have to go down this road <laughs> but in shannon information uh then yeah you're not gaining information but because you have a structure that does transform the signal back into a different uh high dimensional state or whatever one could say maybe non-shannon informationally that uh information is built into the structure and we don't have to talk about meaning versus information but um yeah, yeah. so i guess technically you, you're you're right yeah
0: well so, i mean you could think of the auto as as just being a way to train to do the the encode bit you don't have yeah. to do the the decode bit afterwards right you could work with right. the encoded thing um so so the fact that you decode is there in order to make sure that you're not throwing away relevant information
1: right uh, and, and to your point um in terms of needing eventually to perform the task i mean there's this you know in the past decade or two 15 me- years maybe there's all this work on motor cortex motor brain activity being on this low dimensional uh manifold and you know, this is where like the um, dynamical systems approach has really shown um s-h-o-n-e is is uh that once you're performing the behavior it's actually quite a low dimensional. Uh, representation if you will
0: yeah although i think that there is still some open questions about to what extent that's just because the task that we're asking them to do is low dimensional but let's get, have... maybe let's not get into that <laughs> no no that's that's like
1: my current research world right now it's oh, really? actually okay. kind of kind of frustrating i need your theoretical uh, abilities and your mathematical abilities to help me um yeah so sparsity did, did we uh have we I, did we wrap up enough on sparsity yeah i, I guess so i
0: mean yeah for, for me i think it, it's just it's, it's tied up in this idea of, of bottlenecks being important and it gets at this thing that I would like to get at, which is that there may be something interesting, both in spikes and in, and in, in sort of sparse connectivity structures uh, more generally, that is more than just about resource efficiency.
1: Mm. Uh, how do cause... you get at that? How do you design that? I guess not experiment because you're not an experimentalist, but how do you move forward with that? I, I'm genuinely curious.
0: Well one of the one of the things that we've been doing with one of my PhD students recently is trying to understand to what extent just having sparsity in a network causes the the the, the different elements of that network to learn different functions right so okay. so that's like modularity basically right like sort of functional specialization and and what we found is it has to be incredibly sparse to to automatically learn different functions mm. now there's other ways you can get specialization right there's learning rules that can encourage it to be specialized there's training uh, regimes that can create specialization there's all sorts of other th- and we're not saying that that's the only um, the only route to specialization but it was this was my, my so I guess my first attempt to try and start to think about does that sparsity on its own have interesting implications for the for the the, the types of computations that networks can learn for example and in that case it looks like sparsity on its own wasn't quite enough. But what we did find was that sparsity combined with other forms of resource constraint did, did create quite robust specialization, right? So if you had tons and tons of neurons that it didn't need to learn to separate functions into modules. If you really cut down the number of neurons to the absolute bare minimum, then it did. Or, mm. or you could put other types of resource constraint on it. So that's, that's one, one way that I'm trying to, I guess, trying to get at that.
1: Yeah, I mean so that's an interesting thing because you kind of have to keep everything else still while you change sparsity, right? (laughs) Which is not the way that that brains work. So it's almost a cheat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, it was it was nightmarishly difficult to (laughs) isolate just sparsity and keep everything else relatively controlled. Hmm. And and when you look at that paper, there's I think there's a bunch of slightly odd choices. And those odd choices are because we were really trying to control everything right um but but that was really hard um and, and i think that there is an open question about how much we learn given that we had to do so many odd choices and, and like control so many things uh but that's what we were trying to get at was just like just isolating this the effect of this one key like or or we also introduced introduce resource constraints as well right, right. so, yeah, so yeah. this several few variables and have them all be precisely controlled
1: yeah. What, so this would be a good time to ask you then what you think about the naturalistic turn in neuroscience. where So the tr- traditional neuroscience is control everything, do very controlled, reduced experiments um, where you try to control everything like, like you're doing in your spiking neural networks, right? And, and these days, so the data set that I'm working with is just a mouse walking around in a box with an electrode and not tasked with anything, not doing anything cognitively complex or anything. And, and under that regime, you're, you're not, I mean, you still control, well, it's in a box, right? And you control its environment, it, but you don't, you don't control where it, where it looks. You don't control, you know, how it moves, where it moves, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's proving difficult to, uh, <laughs> I want to do an experiment. I'm constantly wanting to do an experiment instead of, uh, which is fascinating. And I'm like really interested in it, but it means that things are going really slowly because we don't really know how to think so much about these kinds of un- less controlled experiment so what is your take on on this ecological turn if you will
0: yeah I mean I think that we it's it's hard but we have to we, like we have to do it because that is what the brain is ultimately trying to do right it's not trying to solve two alternative force force choice with every other <laughs> you know know in a, in a dark room right like, ah. <laughs> so if we really want to understand what it's doing we, we kind of have to do that um, we have to deal with more ecological environments, but yeah, I totally agree that 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 really leaves us hanging in a way. Like, so what can we do in terms of of an experiment? I mean, I think we can certainly learn some things by um, just you know letting the animal just do its thing and 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 recording what happens. Um, and there's that great paper by um, Carson Stringer and others where I think that they they had a, I think it was a mouse just, you know, nibbling yeah. around, looking at stuff, and they also recorded its facial muscle movements using cameras, uh, and and they did discover something really interesting from that. They discovered that you could explain as much variance in visual cortex from knowing the facial movements of these of these mice as you, as you could from knowing what it was looking at. Yeah. Like, so that's a discovery, and, and and another one that I think we haven't really got our head around what that means, but I guess that doesn't get at everything you might want to learn. Yeah. The. the the the, the, I guess the sort of conflict between having control so that you know what the effect of what you've done is and being in a sort of naturalistic environment that's yeah that's it's really it's really challenging
1: i mean there's an argument that it, when you do control for everything you're actually building in the answer by controlling it yeah so I, I think i've read that you've uh i think i've read from you that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit i'm not sure if that's the exact phrase that you used right now <laughs> um, right now there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of spiking neural networks so I mean I, I know you have your own projects but what are some what are some things that you think some projects that people should take on that you're not personally invested in uh, if you just had to give advice to someone wanting to use spiking neural networks to understand something
0: well that's a good question I think that there's a there's a lot of mileage in just seeing how different neuron properties can aid different sorts of function, right? So, like that heterogeneity paper that I mentioned, that we talked about earlier, that was basically like, what what is the contribution of time constants to function?
1: And it's right? best to always use one line of code if you can. And
0: if you can do it with just one line <laughs> of code, it's all the better. Um, so, so, but I think that you could just you could just generate like enormous number of those. You you could be like, okay, well, let's let's take that one step further now. What about dendrites? Like, are dendrites yeah. useful? We could run yeah. the same thing, right, in, in, in dendrites. So like, what, what are they doing? And I, and I know that um, that there are people out there doing that already. But you could just there's all sorts of like, okay, make, pick an ion channel, right? Look at its dynamics. Like, is that what's that useful for, or or is it just that you know that that's a mechanism that's there? Is it not really contributing to function, or is it really particularly useful for someone? Like, I feel like you can you can do a lot with training a network with and without some mechanism, and then saying, did that help? I think that's that would be a, a low-hanging fruit.
1: But, but you have to ask the right question in yeah. that case. You have to ask the right question. You have to have the right task. I mean, th- this gets to something I was going to ask you about, the right level of abstraction, right? Since you mentioned um, ion channels. Uh, for some reason, ion channels are the first thing that people scoff at when they say, like, that's too detailed, you know? But... Um, and you mentioned the Allen Institute. There are people like Gaut Einav who has been on the podcast, who you know have these like highly detailed simulations, right, um, to understand how like the neural signals that the brain produces, how those arise, and and then how to better to study them. Uh, and then you have people who say, well, ion channels, dendrites, oh, that's too like that's too much detail for what you're actually asking functionally to understand it. And you're somewhere in between there, I suppose. Are you at the correct level of abstraction, and how do you know?
0: <laughs> well, I'd like to think so, obviously, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's a it's a guess, and everyone makes their own guess. Um, so yeah, so so my my sort of I guess my preference is somehow to to I, I don't think that those things are irrelevant. Like I don't think dendrites are irrelevant. I don't think ion channels are irrelevant, but I also don't think that we can just throw all of those details into a massive box and gain understanding. Like we have to we have to approach that in a in a more simplifying, abstracting way. This is just my own personal preference, right? Um, so for example, I, I really like the um, approach of uh, Dendrify, which is a, a, a new piece of software that came out in the last year or so, which basically takes a detailed dendritic model and, and reduces it sort of automatically to just like one or two compartments, yeah. right? And now, okay, now I can maybe understand one or two compartments. <laughs> I can train those one or two compartments i can see what things that i can do with that and maybe that tells me something about what i could do if i had a thousand compartments um but i don't want to start with the thousand compartments because i feel like i'll never get anywhere if i try and do that um and similarly for for, for ion channels like i think that there's there's all sorts of things that definitely are potentially interesting right like so you have different sorts of sort of inhibition right you have like shunting inhibition which has a different you know it's a different sort of inhibition like where the inhibition falls on the dendritic tree can be important like those things might all be really important but i want to study that in a abstract way not by like coming up with a, a single neuron model that requires a hundred thousand parameters of which we only know five and we have to guess <laughs> the other um, whatever um so yeah um, but but I do think one of those things can be can be important uh, and, and time constants is I mean in a way it's just ion channels right uh, It's just one particular right. abstract view yeah. of ion channels
1: what what's something that's uh, holding you back right now what, what are you what are you stuck on that uh, you, you feel you need some breakthrough to make progress on
0: I think there's there's two things I guess so the the easier thing, which I think is just going to be solved at some point. I don't, I, okay, let's say five to ten years. That's my, my prediction. Always, yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> <Sorry>. is, <laughs> no, no, it's it's, it's, a, fair, it's a fair comment. Okay. It's a fair comment even before I've said what it is. Um, <laughs> and that's basically how to train spiking neural networks as efficiently as we can train artificial neural networks. Because right now, so I've talked about surrogate gradient descent and how much I love it. It's incredibly resource hungry uh, to train.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Um, I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, no. It's, so it's, it's interesting because like the, the goal there is something very resource efficient, by right. a spiking neural network. But the training is actually much, much less efficient. And that's why we haven't done it at scale. Um, the largest um, spiking neural network I've trained with surrogate gradient descent is maybe 1,000 neurons. Okay. Um, I think that the largest that anyone's trained is, is in the small tens of thousands. Uh, and it's just because the memory consumption of surrogate gradient descent grows very rapidly. With number of neurons so that's, hmm. that's a sort of technical problem and I suspect that we'll just guess I mean there's lots of people working on solving that there's lots of different approaches being tried I suspect that some and, and none of them have quite worked perfectly yet although there's been progress so I suspect that that's just going to get solved at some point because if that feels like a just like a, a purely technical in some sense I, I think that it might involve quite fundamental insight about learning to do that so hmm. it's not purely technical but it just—it just feels solvable. It feels like it's a a well enough posed problem that we can solve
1: it. You don't think it's um, just going to be stumbled upon by enough people uh, poking around in different directions? Yeah, it's possible.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I guess I mean I guess the reason I just is is, is what I just said is just it's it's well posed, right? okay. and when a problem is is well posed, I, I kind oh. of believe in a solution.
1: Interesting. The le-
0: the less well posed problem that keeps holding me back is. is I think we, we touched on it a few times. Is the lack of a good mathematical framework to to talk about a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in, like to talk about um, sort of systems that are both discrete and continuous, so mm. spiking, for example, or or to approach sparsity in 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 machine learning. Sparsity is a really interesting but slightly niche topic. Right? like there definitely are people who are interested in it, but the tools are really like much less well developed for, for sparsity. Right? If you try and use sparse connectivity in one of the big machine learning toolboxes, you'll find that it's like terribly inefficient, okay. and it's because there's not, you know, the, 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 the that, that theory development isn't isn't there yet, um, both at a, a technical level, but also I think at a conceptual level, we just we haven't got the right mathematical concepts to, to approach
1: a lot of this stuff. So, that, so sparsity is something where its importance is recognized without having a good fundamental concept of why. I think
0: so, yeah.
1: And you're also inter- interested in modularity and understanding modularity better. Is that something also where we don't have enough mathematical tools to approach? Does that fall under that umbrella?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, so in that paper, we spent a lot of time, in fact, mo- probably the most time in that project just coming up with a measure of whether a piece of the network was specialized for a particular function or not. Um, And that was like surprisingly difficult. So near the beginning of that project, I think I asked on Twitter, how do you define whether something is specialized on something? And that created this huge discussion and there were no really clear answers that came out of it. So we came up in the end with, with three measures and we were kind of satisfied in that these three measures, which were kind of different from each other, kind of qualitatively did the same thing in our in our model. Mm. So it felt like maybe they were measuring something meaningful or real. But again, that's that's a very vague thing to say, right? Like we've got these three measures and they're qualitatively quite similar. You'd like to say something a bit more concrete than that, ideally.
1: I mean this is the this is where I'm continuing to try to wrap my head around this, about how to even talk about it, but this is where I want to uh, have principles that can point to something like complexity, right? Well, in a complex system, uh, this happens. And and be satisfied with that answer as its own unifying principle. And that's a terrible example because complexity is like such a poorly defined term and, and encompasses so much. But principles of that nature, I want to be able to confidently state and, and mean, <laughs> and feel comfortable uh, doing so. And I, I, I'm not there yet. Um, do you think that that's a possibility, though?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think we will find the right concepts. I'm, I'm so sort of optimistic about that. Um, but I, I, I do think that we're still quite far, like, and, and, I, and I think in a way, that's why that's why neuroscience, in a way, I mean, not everyone agrees with me on this. Like, I kind of feel like neuroscience is, it's almost like pre, pre-paradynamic. Oh, a
1: lot of people do. A lot yeah. of people do agree with you, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, it's it's a controversial one, right? Uh, but I feel like there's, there's so many, like, basic things that, that we just haven't ever answered. Like, in a way, it's, it's we've had 100 years of neuroscience, and we don't know whether spike times matter or not. Like... <laughs> You know?
1: know, it's sad. It's sad.
0: <laughs> well, it's sad, but it's also just it's it's because we don't have we don't have the right frameworks to answer questions like that. I guess, um, but I you know I I think that those the development of those is 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 just hard, right? Like, if you look in physics, right, the, the development of the concept of mass, for example. Right, as opposed to weight or whatever, that really unlocks a lot of stuff. But that yeah. that wasn't easy to come by. Right? That, that took a lot of development before we got that concept right. And once we got it, it unlocks so much stuff. Um, so, I, so I think that we may well have a similar thing here, that we're, we're still in the sort of stumbling around the dark, just trying out a load of stuff. Uh, but I, I do think that, that we will make progress.
1: What, what do you think is the... Um, sp- if you had to point to the single most valuable thing that artificial intelligence, let's say deep learning, has taught neuroscience, what would you what would you say, if anything?
0: I mean, for me, the, the big thing is uh, it's it's the, the training algorithms. It's it's that there are these algorithms that surprisingly mathematical can can do it. Yeah, can, I mean. There's a lot of surprising stuff there, right? Like, you know, the, the stochastic gradient descent, for example, compared to just hill climbing, sort of right. standard gradient descent, lets you learn really hard tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, you throw in momentum into that and you can learn even harder tasks. And we can just take those tools and start using them. Like for me, that's that's brilliant. Um, so, so that's the technical thing. Um, I think intellectually, there's a really interesting thing as well, which is that what we think is hard might not be what's actually hard in some sense, right? Like it feels incredibly difficult for us to imagine being able to draw a picture of a tiger in a top hat in the style of Van Gogh or, or whatever, right? But it turns out that that's actually easier than catching a ball.
1: This is more right? of X paradox, yeah. Who's that? Sorry, I didn't. More hear of that. X paradox, where it's, uh, yeah, a, a lot of the things that we take for granted that are super easy for us are hard for machines, and vice versa. And vice versa, like,
0: like, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's also really interesting. So, so often, what I'm interested in when I look at these like machine learning models is that because we know that they're not as capable in some sense at g- sort of general intelligence as us, what they're doing is is in some sense. Simpler, and it tells us that this this thing that we were looking at that we thought was the source of all uh understanding of our own intelligence it wasn't actually quite that like you know it it, it helps us i think focus our attention on what we what we don't know and what we still need to understand better in some way, um, which is not to say sorry I, I i i've heard this one a lot so it's, i'm not saying that um, anything that machine learning can do is automatically not interesting and not what real intelligence is about. I think at some point we 'll have enough of these pieces that that they will just be intelligent. It turns out that that is what intelligence is mm. it 's more that um, it 's more that you can do surprisingly much with with tools that are not necessarily perfectly aligned to that goal i think um, and so for me like I think large of large language models like that like i i don't think that they're doing get my bias i don't think that they're doing language or reasoning the way we're doing reasoning but <laughs> you've got to admit that they do an amazing job <laughs> and that this thing that isn't really what we're doing turns out to be good enough to do 95% of what we do um but it's also interesting that that, that it's that they're surprisingly so bad at some stuff like on a, on a whim i tried out testing whether GPT could match parentheses, and it can't match parentheses,
1: right? And that's- What, what do you mean, match parentheses? Oh,
0: right, like, are there the same number of open parentheses oh. as closed parentheses in a bit of code, right? Yeah. So why is it that it can't do this incredibly basic task, but Wait. if I ask it to write me a program to do X, it can just yeah. do that, even right. if it's something that it hasn't seen before? Like how- I would, ar- I would argue how are humans those- are
1: not very good at, o- at counting open and closed parentheses, at least in my coding, unless it autofills for <laughs> me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough, but if if that's what we were trying to do, I think we could right. probably do it, right? Like we could, we can force. But it's 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 really surprising how bad it is at it, actually. Um, you can give it examples where it's obvious that the parentheses are matched, and it and it mm. just guesses at random, basically, mm. and often just tells you completely unrelated stuff. Um, but and, and I think that that's I mean. I did that and I looked into it and it turns out that there's all sorts of surprisingly simple things like that, the large language models are about it. They can't count. So if you write like A, 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 how many A's were there? It, it gets that wrong. Things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, each time anyone finds one, the the people making them change the model so it can do that. So so they never last very long, these things. But it's, it's, it's amazing that this thing that can't do this, something we think of as so simple, it can write us a program to do really complicated functions or draw us a picture that's better than we could draw ourselves or yeah. um, or summarize a you know a paper or a field or in a surprisingly it's surprisingly accurately right like it tells us that what we what we think is what we think is difficult is maybe not quite right and I think what that's is that,
1: valuable to me that's f- fairly humbling in terms of thinking of my own intelligence right because we value those sorts of skills like you were just saying above catching a ball for instance, um, but then I see, you know, a machine do something that's uh, very, what I would consider an intellectual feat on my own or something that I can't do, you know, but I could just ask a, a large language model to do it. Do you feel the same as I feel that, uh, I'm not sure if humbling is the right word, but a sense of like, oh, maybe um, my reaction is like, oh, maybe that's like not very intellectually difficult. Not, maybe it's not very difficult.
0: Yeah, and I, and I don't really know if difficult really makes sense, but I, I have the same feeling as you, right? Like, <laughs> um, I thought, you know, maybe I thought like being able to write nice prose was was important, but it turns right. out that it can do a much better job at like that.
1: In many uh, here's cases. my question: D- Does it reduce the value of humans doing things like that? Does it reduce the value of poets, let's say, right? Not as human beings, but in in terms of the r- the how we revere certain talents
0: i mean in a way we can already answer that right because we've seen it in in things like chess playing right it's it's been now a while I, since we weren't as yeah. good at chess as computers <laughs> yeah uh, and i feel like we're still interested in i mean i'm not i don't i don't play chess but uh, i feel I used like people to. are interested in to. chess right? <laughs> But I feel like people who are interested—I I don't know—has like has interest in chess waned since computers got better at it? I'm not sure that it has.
1: I don't I'm know. not sure either. Yeah, I don't yeah.
0: know. But I mean, I'm certainly te- people are still playing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and i i think it's worthwhile. Like I, I've taught my son how to play chess, and we, you know, we play occasionally. It's been a while, but but I'm also less interested in it as an intellectual pursuit. I think because of the success. Yeah. Anyway,
0: I mean, I think that's. Uh, Probably going to be at some point an an existential question for our species, but at some point, but we're not quite there yet. Fortunately,
1: no, five five to ten years. (laughs) Yeah, five to ten years exactly. Let me ask um, the the converse of the question I asked you before, and then I want to talk about um, your your recent sort of meta science stuff. um, And and I I won't keep you all day. But so I asked you, you know, what you think that AI has done for neuroscience. What do you think that, let's say, your own work and or just neuroscience in general has done or will do um, for AI?
0: yeah i mean i think historically they've there's been i i wouldn't say it as simply as like what has neuroscience done for ai i mean i think if you look at the early history it was almost that they weren't separate questions right they the, the people who were doing one were doing the other and and uh they didn't think of it as separate questions and more recently they have diverged but i think that's almost a shame i feel like it it would be nice to have some of that early energy of like this is somehow the same question that we're approaching and we've got different ways of approaching it.
1: Um, Part of that and, is just the phrase artificial quote intelligence, which I've come to despise, because it reifies intelligence, which maybe is not a thing. Anyway, sorry to interrupt.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I try and always talk about machine learning rather than AI. It's but um, yeah, for, for that reason, uh, I think. It's it's one of those hot, hot buzzwords that, uh, yeah. But as to, as to what that interaction could meaningfully be about i think i've I've encountered from people who are like from machine learning people a bit of skepticism about the idea that they have anything to learn from neuroscience and i think i get it i think i i think i understand how it would feel for like you to be working on this really important and exciting topic and be making so much progress and then some neuroscientist come along and says you should be learning from what i do (laughs) like um yeah that that would be pretty annoying Um, and i'm not sure it's really as simple as that but I think what could be useful is for us to think of it as, as, as two aspects of the same question, right? Like what, okay, this is probably, this is my mathematician talking, it's probably too abstract, but like what's, what are the space of intelligent mechanisms out there? Yep. Right? And maybe machine learning is going to explore some part of that space and, and neuroscience is exploring another part of the space, but they're somehow exploring the same problem, but from, from two different points of view and i think that it's it would be good if both sides knew a bit more about the other even if it's not a direct matter of like we'll take ideas from one side and go to the other side or vice versa but but more like if we have a broader conception of the problem that we're trying to solve we might come up with answers that we wouldn't have done with a more narrow conception i think that's how i would put it
1: Uh, And, and do you feel optimistic for yourself moving forward, that uh, those fruits are there for you to discover,
0: yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel like there's there's a lot of exciting, interesting stuff to in, in that in that sort of space. Um, like for for me, I think a, a lot of what I'm thinking about is trying to think about the the, the tasks that are are different. I guess from from the ones we've looked at before, so so like for neuroscience, neuroscience needs to look at more richer, messier data, right? But on the other hand, machine learning people maybe need to think more about behaviour or about um, generalisation, or like obviously that's not it's not that that's an, an unstudied right. topic in machine right. learning, obviously, but like that's that's maybe in the study of those sorts of things is where knowing a little bit about how the brain does things might inspire something, right? Because it's already doing those things. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's in, it's in that space between. That I think that there's there's some interesting stuff. That, that's why I guess where my interests
1: are. Anyway. Okay. Um. All right. So we're going to take a an orthogonal turn here because I know that as as you age in academia, like any good neuroscientist, you're becoming more and more curmudgeonly. <laughs> it's one way to. <laughs> one way to put it and seeing the cracks, what's working, what's not working. And the there's a cottage industry of complaining about the publishing industry. Uh, yeah, I just use in- industry twice. Um, and you're part of that cottage industry. And do you not review papers anymore?
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, so I, uh, I stopped, um, I, I quit all my editorial positions and uh, stopped reviewing because I think it does damage to science. And I can talk about my sort of personal reason for doing that, which was I always found reviewing and later editing an uncomfortable experience.
1: All right. Well, Dan, I really appreciate your time. Um, I won't keep you uh, all day here, but continue the good work with the spiking neural networks. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to be working on in the near future with them. And we didn't talk about all of your... The good deeds that you have done outside of science as well with things like Neuromatch and uh Snafu. Is that what it's is that Snafu? Yeah. SNUFA, yeah. Snafu is the it's like yeah. as
0: as close <laughs> as possible to Snafu without actually being Snafu. Was that intentional? <laughs> yeah, a little
1: bit. <laughs> it's worked out that way. Um, anyway, I'll I'll mention those in the introduction. So um but but thanks for being with me. I appreciate the time.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
1: I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI: The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.